Hi, this is not J. Elvis Weinstein, but it is Chris Bliss, and you're listening to PF's Tape Recorder. Hello there, I'm PF, this is my tape recorder. Coming up, Trevor Dahl of Plug and Stereo talks about touring the country the old-fashioned way, town to town, in a van. Riding, sometimes having to do 20-hour drives, like we just drove from Texas to Florida the other day. It was very intense, 20, 22 hours straight. We'll hear more from Trevor in just a little bit. Plus, we'll stop in and listen to Mitt Romney on the campaign trail at Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois. But first, as always, fake news. And now, fake news with me. Iowa's unseasonably warm winter has not only delighted early golfers, but apparently has inspired Iowa cows to produce record amounts of milk, the Des Moines Register reports. The paper also reports that the cows are having less difficulty falling asleep at night. Peyton Manning is signed with the Denver Broncos. Denver GM John Elway, a boyhood idol of Manning, introduced the team's new quarterback at a press conference on Monday. Manning stressed that he will always have the utmost love and respect for the Colts. Quipped Elway, not me, still. You have to think about that one, sports fans. New Orleans Saints head coach Sean Payton has been suspended for one year for failing to be aware of the team's bounty hunting system. Upon the announcement of the suspension, Saints punter Thomas Morstead tweeted, This is unbelievable. Feels like I got punched in the gut. And that's only worth about $50, as a matter of fact. At $15 a pop for Tide in the 100-fluid-ounce container, it's not surprising thieves across the country are stealing the iconic laundry detergent. Earlier this month, a Tide robber from St. Paul, Minnesota, stole $25,000 worth of the detergent and was sentenced to 90 days in jail and five years probation, according to a story in the Pioneer Press. He thought he'd made a clean getaway. (laughs) Authorities have come up with a deterrent. They have simply changed the G to an R in detergent. President Obama said today he is expediting approval of the southern end of the Keystone XL oil pipeline, that's the part going from Oklahoma to the Gulf of Mexico there in Texas. And he criticized Republicans for turning an energy and environmental issue into a political one, without a hint of irony. See, I can, I can do it the other side sometimes. After Mitt Romney's communication director likened the former governor's presidential campaign strategy to an exasketch, his opponents, of course, turned up everywhere with the little red toys, giving the illusion that they were clever. The only thing that could make this more lame is if Romney's opponents started calling it Etch-a-Sketch-A-Gate. And that's been Fake News with me. have time for a bit or fake news last week due to the breaking story about Jeff Tate's appearance on the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. Hope you caught that. Uh, Now for this week's bit, I try not to go all political on you. Uh, My wife told me that 75% of Facebook followers don't like political stuff appearing uh, in their news feed. And uh, when I heard that, I was reminded of something I heard a conservative talk show host say around uh, 1999-2000. It was Atlanta's Neil Bortz, who you may know from saying horrible things, well, like this. This town is starting to look like a garbage heap. And we got too damn many urban thugs. Yo! Ruining the quality of life for everybody. And I'll tell you what it's going to take. You people, you are, you need to have a gun. 
You need to have training. You need to know how to use that gun. You need to get a permit to carry that gun. And you do, in fact, need to carry that gun. And we need to see some dead thugs littering the landscape in Atlanta. Yeah, like that. Now, to be fair, uh, all Mr. Bortz was saying was there's too many black folks in Atlanta and white people should probably kill some. I mean, that's not incendiary at all. Now, he's not all about, you know, saying horrible things. These kids should have done something to defend themselves from this shooter at Virginia Tech. And this is a just a great indication to me of how far advanced we are with the wussification of America. Okay, well, in that too. But uh, what I recall him saying, and this again was the late 90s, uh, is he said that more people in this country care about whether or not Niles and Daphne are going to get together. Now, remember, this is still when Frazier was still on the air. Then they do about their own government, and when the government really affects your life, and Niles and Daphne really don't. And uh, he was and is still exactly right. And of course, uh, two episodes ago, Jimmy Dore uh, made almost the exact same point, and I would have replayed that. But I think it's more fun to play stuff like this. Barack Obama is a bigger disaster to this country than 9-11. But that's not what this bit is about exactly. Uh, Mitt Romney, on his way to winning the Illinois primary last week, uh, spoke to students at Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois, and he had some interesting things to say. Uh, first of all, Mitt's going to put us all back to work because uh, that'll fix everything, and uh, but it'll certainly help. I'm not going to argue that. I'm not being snide. I think that is the number one issue, and Mitt says he has experience. He worked uh, for Bain Capital, after all. Um, what did Bain Capital do again? Bain's primary business is acquiring companies, trying to improve those companies, and then sell that company or take that company public, hopefully for a higher value than it originally paid. That's the essence of its business. Sometimes that means that they shrink the company before they're going to grow it, which is when we've heard of layoffs. And yes, Bain did create jobs in some of its ventures. Um, I can't remember where those were, though. Contacted by CNN, Romney's campaign said Bain Capital had a good track record, creating jobs with companies like Staples and Domino's Pizza. And he did this even though, as well, he put it. I like being able to fire people. Now, I know what you're thinking. A lot of people on the left and Democrats and progressives and uh, all sorts of folks like that actually came to Romney's defense saying that that kind of was taken out of context. He was talking about health care and folks being able to choose their health care provider. And then if you didn't like your health care provider, how they were giving you service, you could fire them. But I still think it's interesting he chose that language and not saying something like you could take your business elsewhere. You could go to one of their competitors. No, he said you could fire people and he liked firing people. I think, hey, look, I went to college. I took a psychology course. I think that's very telling. All right. He's hired some people. He's fired some people. But uh, this is how he's going to help college kids deal with the amazing amount of debt that they're leaving college with. Uh, the best thing I can do for student debt is get you a good job when you come out. And get them a good job where? Staples and Domino's Pizza. Now, I'm not putting the knock on working at Domino's Pizza. Far from it. In fact, uh, when I was in college my senior year, uh, I worked at Domino's Pizza and it was probably the best job I ever had. It was a lot of fun. Get to drive around, listen to tunes, bring people pizza. They're happy to see you. You get tipped. Uh, you make way above the minimum wage when all is said and done. Paid a fair wage uh, to use your vehicle uh, as far as mileage and, and gas goes. So it was a fun job. And uh, I worked for them again. A few years later, I was between uh, permanent full-time jobs, and while I was a little worried that I would never find another permanent full-time job, you know how you get when you're you know, between jobs like that, uh, it was still a lot of fun, and it's great 
great if you're between jobs now uh, really to deliver pizza, not just for Domino's. I'm sure it's good for uh, working for other companies as well. But again, you know, drive around, listen to tunes. It's at night, so you can still look for a job during the day uh, mostly. So believe me, Domino's Pizza, not a bad place to work. But if you're dealing with a student loan debt of $25,000, which is what the average uh, student loan debt is, uh, you're not going to pay that down working at Staples and Domino's Pizza. I don't know, maybe make can go back to the drawing board on that one, work on it a little bit more. Uh, as for the rest of us, uh, Mitt says we all have to sacrifice. And we're going to have to demand sacrifice of the American people. The idea of borrowing a trillion dollars more than we take in is not just bad economics, it's immoral. I'm not going to do it, and I'm not going to promise what can't be delivered. Okay, so maybe we're spending a little more than we're taking in. Uh, certainly, I think uh, we can all agree that that is an issue. How much of an issue, though, uh, is probably up for debate. But uh, I'm, uh, I'm just curious there, Mitt. What kind of things would you cut? We have something called the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities. The NEA. Know what the NEA's budget was in 2008? $121 million. Gutsy call, Mitt. He also says that PBS and NPR should run commercials, and I think both of those networks are to the point of saying it's just not worth the headache to get government funding anymore because of all the controversy. So uh, that's almost a done deal anyway. And uh, let's run commercials and rely on member donations is kind of what they're saying. Uh, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting's budget, uh, which is where NPR and uh, PBS get some of their federal funding, uh, was about $450 million in 2010. So uh, we all have to sacrifice, though. That's Mitt's main message. And, uh, well, we have to. Mitt doesn't. Uh, what's the effective rate I've been paying? Well, I've, it's probably closer to the 15%. That's Mitt discussing how much he pays in taxes, uh, where the effective top tax rate in this country is around 35%, since Mitt makes most of his money off of capital gains and investments and, and really doesn't really have a job right now, uh, except running for president. He's only paying 15% on uh, his uh, multi-million dollar income. Okay, so uh, what about the housing crisis? Number two, the best thing I can do for home values is to get the 8% of people, 8.3% of people in this country that are out of work, back to work. With companies like Staples and Domino's Pizza. Okay, yeah, I threw that last minute from the CNN clip from before. But then Mitt has another fascinating idea. And to have rising incomes again. Instead of median income dropping 10%, I get it, to get it to go up again. To me, this is the most interesting thing that Romney said at Bradley University, and here's why. In 1980, the average CEO compensation was about 42 times what the average worker was paid, and as of a couple of years ago, that had gone up to 344 times the pay of the average worker. That is from a video uh, posted by the Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland, and it's just something I've kind of said all along, and I kind of had this discussion with Jimmy Dore uh, a couple of weeks ago, that I don't think you can directly have the government take care of wage disparity. I mean, you can uh, you tax the wealthy more, and we can get things like health care, which would take some of the burden off of the middle class, and we could you know, fix our roads and bridges, and that would create jobs, and people would buy more stuff, and that would help out. I mean, but you really can't have the government just handing people money that you know, aren't in otherwise you know, in, a, in a desperate way. But um, I just find it fascinating that Mitt's going to somehow bring our way—he's going to tell his buddies, hey, why don't you just pay people more? Because if he did, he might get my vote. Um, okay, and then finally, uh, Mitt has this little nugget. Someone in the crowd asks him, are you going to drill for oil? Gee, I wonder what Mitt's answer is. Absolutely. Uh, let me tell you. Um... No, no, don't tell me. That's fine. I get it. Um, and then uh, this woman a little later on asks him uh, a question about eminent domain. And this is pretty interesting. I'd like to ask you about the executive order that was just signed this past Friday. 
that allows the government to confiscate property and personal possessions and not enduring an act of war. This takes Mitt a little bit by surprise because he doesn't really know what she's talking about, and understandably so because I think she's a little confused. Uh, this executive order does not allow the government to take your property when it's not a time of war. It's just a restating of a law that's been on the book since the 1950s, and every president since Harry Truman has signed a similar executive order into law. But Mitt does use this uh, as a way to address eminent domain, which is kind of a controversy that I think folks uh, both left and right are always concerned about, whether the government can come and say, hey, we're going to build something, a highway or something, we're going to take your property. That's always been kind of controversial, even if it is for the common good, like a bridge or a highway or a dam or something like that. Here's what Mitt had to say. A couple uh, in Idaho, they, they purchased a little piece of land. This was a, a couple that was hoping to build a small home on their piece of land in a residential community. And, uh, and an EPA regulator came in as they broke ground in their property and, uh, and told them you can't build here because it's wetland. Okay, and I can see why there'd be some controversy there, but uh, it's odd that if you're trying to protect the environment, it, it's somehow evil, but if you're trying to put an oil pipeline through somebody's land, you can send them a letter that says this. You know, it says, you are by now aware that TransCanada Keystone Pipeline is constructing and will operate an 1,833-mile crude oil pipeline. The letter goes on to read that if he refused to cooperate... Keystone will use eminent domain to acquire the easement. This is currently being investigated by the courts there in, I believe that's Nebraska, where this is taking place, because uh, the big question is, well, not only does it seem unseemly that a private corporation can force you to give up your property under the guise of eminent domain, uh, a foreign company can apparently do that as well. So... Um, I just thought that was interesting. The uh, The big takeaway, of course, I guess from Mitt's uh, talk at Bradley University, though, is that we have to sacrifice. Uh, not necessarily Mitt now, but uh, in return, Mitt's going to give us jobs, probably at... Staples and Domino's Pizza. But watch your step, you know, don't get too comfortable in those jobs once you get them, because, well, tell them, Mitt. I like being able to fire people. Trevor Dahl was the sole permanent member of the Portland-based band Plug & Stereo. Their current release is the Patience EP. They are currently on tour with Every Avenue and We Are The In Crowd. Here's our interview with Trevor Dahl. All right, joining us on PF's Tape Recorder, it's Trevor from Plug In Stereo. Trevor, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? Very good. Uh, we saw you here in Cincinnati uh, in December with the uh, Ready Set, the Summer Set, and um, uh, the fellows from South Dakota. Um, Paradise Fierce. We love those guys. And uh, pleasant yeah, surprise. <clears throat> yeah, pleasant surprise to see you. Uh, it was a wonderful show, and my uh, daughter and her friend were enthralled with your performance. Um, you may remember oh, them after awesome. the show. Thank yeah. You. My uh, daughter's boyfriend kept patting her hair. He thought he was, he was amazed by your dude, <laughs> if you remember that. That's great. It happened. Yep. Um, so uh, walk me through this. Um, how long have you been interested uh, in making music? Um, I started playing stereo about three years ago, but I started playing music, um, I think, six years ago. I started in sixth grade. Okay. I started playing acoustic guitar and then uh, playing a whole different type, like, a whole bunch of different types of bands, like, rock, pop, uh, even hardcore stuff. And then a uh, freshman year came around and I started doing solo stuff on the acting, kind of. I just did it when my band was on a break. And uh, yeah, I just kind of took it from there and took it more seriously as time went on. So 
I started that like two years ago. So you uh, found, immediately found the advantages of being kind of a one-man operation? Say it again? Did you kind of uh, immediately start gravitating toward the idea of being a one-man operation after being in so many bands when you started doing your demos? Yeah, exactly. Actually, when I first started playing music in Tewksbury, uh, I always wanted to be in a band, and my brother and his friends all played music in the garage, and I didn't have any friends who played music, so ah. I was forced to kind of just write music by myself in my room. So I used to hate it, and I was like always trying to get him to let me play music with them, but they wouldn't. So, <laughs> you know, I was always in bands, and then uh, once my band was on a break, I started writing solo stuff again, just for fun. And uh, yeah, as soon as I started doing it, I really started hooked to it, and never wanted to go back to writing with other people. So, yeah. So did you uh, did the songwriting come immediately, or did you just learn to play first and then later on do songwriting, or did the songwriting come along pretty quickly as well? Um, I've always been into songwriting. Like even though like poetry in elementary school, I just I've always liked to write and rhyme as much as possible. I guess so. Yeah, I've, I've always loved songwriting, and so when I started writing music by myself, um, when I started playing with stereo, I just did instrumentals because I didn't know how to sing really. I just I just liked writing lyrics, but I didn't know how to sing, and so. I just put out some instrumentals, and some people were like, hey, you should try to sing on them. Hmm. And so I tried, and then I just kind of got more into it and got more comfortable with my voice and wrote a lot more. So, yeah, I've always been the singer-songwriter, big singer-songwriting, I guess. So who were some of your influences growing up, like uh, around the like in sixth grade when you were starting to get interested in the guitar? Uh, who were you listening to then? Um, my parents definitely played a lot of the Beatles and played a lot of Bob Dylan growing up. And so I've always kind of always dug back into the and uh, when I started playing my own music, I've always been into John Mayer and Jason Mraz and uh, well, Jason Reeves and Colby Calais. But lately, I've been into a lot of bands like The Shins and Local Natives and more indie full band stuff. And uh, how's the traveling treating you? I know these days when, when you're a band, you've really got to... Uh, you really got to... Really Say it again? So how has the traveling been treating you? Because I know when you're in a band, you've really got to travel around a lot these days, more so than, than you used to even uh, back in the day, back in the 80s, maybe in the 90s. Uh, does, does the traveling get you down, or is it at your young age, is it still exciting and a chance to see the world? It, it's fun. It's very fun, but it does get tiring, especially after doing it for months and months. You know, it's just kind of, it's a very, like, it's very different every day, but it's also very similar. It's a lot of, Sleeping in the van, arriving at the show, waiting to play, and yeah. playing, and then being very tired, and <laughs> just going back to the hotel, you know? So it's very, there's also a new city in, in like every night, and there's new people every night. So it's, it's very weird, but it's a lot of fun. I love meeting people. It's like the best thing about doing it, just meeting fans and meeting random people who live in the cities that we're at. So that's cool. But uh, I feel like some hard things about it, like missing family, missing friends, and you can't really have a relationship you're this young and <laughs> touring bunch, so yeah. you know there's, there's pros and cons, but I'm definitely loving what I'm doing. Now, when you say Van, you're not kidding because after the uh, the show, you were here in town with the uh, the Ready Set was the headline act, and of course he had a nice big bus, and the rest of y'all had uh, there were all these vans parked around his bus. <laughs> and uh, now the tour before that, exactly. when I saw him on. He was an opener too, so he was probably in the van situation. But I guess once you graduate to headlining status. Life gets more comfortable, and I, and I felt badly. And, and uh, the Somerset told the story on stage about how their van broke down the last time they were in town. Only two of them could make it to the show, and so uh, yeah, I guess that must oh, be yeah. that must be pretty grinding. Yeah, it's weird. It's very tiring in the van when there's just like eight people in one van riding. Sometimes having to do twenty-hour drives, like we just drove from Texas to Florida the other day, Ooh. which was very intense. Twenty twenty-two hours straight. 
So yeah, it does get very tiring, but it's fun once you get to the to the cities and to the venues. And I'm kind of used to chilling out in the van. I just like to write and read and uh, relax, I guess. But now uh, you said it, Bumpy... it would be nice to have a bus. <laughs> yeah, day. oh yeah, <laughs> it's something to strive for, I guess. Um, hopefully, we can help you out. Sell some more. Uh copies of the EP and uh, get some more fans in the seats there at the concerts and we'll see what we can do. Um, now, about meeting yeah, fans, um, we've mentioned this before with other guests we've had on, like the Ready Set and All Time Low and, and all those folks, is that uh, it seems bands nowadays are much more, uh, I guess, accessible to their fans. Whereas in, you know, back in the day, if you hung out behind the, the theater, you maybe met the band, you maybe met one person in the band, but it seems like a lot of you guys now are much more active in, in reaching the fan base. Um, is that something you just grew yeah, up with, or is that something someone said, oh, you need to do this now, or how, how does that come about? What was the last part of that, what you say? Uh, did, did someone point you in that direction, or did it just come naturally to you that you're like, well, I just want to you just want to meet the fans? Well, it definitely came naturally, because in the beginning, it was me trying to get anybody to listen to my music you know, on the Internet. So it was just me hitting up hundreds of people that I've never, ever met before. <laughs> just being like, please listen to it, please listen to it. <laughs> And so when they would respond, I would definitely try to get them to keep talking to me and just keep listening to my music. So it just kind of came naturally. And then after a while, I just I like to I like to talk to people that listen to my music and meet them and try to show them that I care a little bit. You know what I mean? It's just it's what you got to do, especially nowadays where there's so many bands and so many kinds of artists. That you, you know, if you don't do that at all, you might just be forgotten. And then, you know what I mean? It's just kind of oh yeah, you got to keep internet has changed a lot. Of has changed the music business a lot and changed how bands and artists have to go about promoting themselves. So uh, what is the plan uh, uh, going forward? Do you have the EP out? Um, are there a lot of more songs uh, in the catalog that are yet to be recorded or have been recorded and are waiting to be released? Yes, there's a lot of songs. I have, uh, I've been writing a bunch lately, and I have uh, most of the album, the upcoming album that I'm finishing up pretty soon is almost done, so I only have to record four or five more. And besides those 12 songs that I'll have, I have written like a, a whole bunch that are just waiting to be recorded and, and heard or given away. I don't even care. I just want to put out as many songs as possible and try to keep out as many songs as possible that aren't going to make the album just, just to give them away and record yeah. them and just so people can hear them. Cause it's a bummer when a lot of artists and bands have like extra songs and they just never put them out. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd rather not do that. I'd rather just put them out and, and have them not be on the album. But as long as people hear them, that's all I care about. Any chance uh, we'll see that uh, gorgeous uh, acoustic version of Oh Darling come out as a uh, as an MP3 or some kind of the one that was circulating on well, YouTube? Well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a good reaction to that when I did the little piano version of yeah. it. So I don't know. Maybe we can. Maybe we'll just have to hit the guy up and ask if we can put it on iTunes or not. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, the name of the EP is uh, The Patience. With a the yeah, the Patience EP. All right, and uh, the Patience EP, and uh, we'll see you in Cincinnati this Friday, although by the time this podcast plops, it'll be, we'll have seen you this past Friday. <laughs> and, uh, exactly. Okay, well, again, it sounds like things are going well for you, sir, and uh, we'll be rooting for you and uh, making sure people go see you around the country and uh, promoting the dates Great. and so forth. And we'll link to all the all things plug-in stereo on the uh, podcast website. And, again, thanks for taking the time, okay. man. All right. Goodbye. No problem. Thank you so much, man. Bye.
Thanks again to Trevor Dahl of Plug In Stereo for being on the podcast. You can find him at pluginstereo.com, easy enough. Uh, and as usual, on the Podbean page of PF's tape recorder, uh, that is pfradio.podbean.com, we will have all the links uh, applicable to this episode. Uh, thanks to Mitt Romney for being Mitt. Uh, like us on Facebook, follow me on Twitter at PF66, PF Tape Recorder logo designed by Dan Coble. Follow him at Tiger Dactyl, uh, spelled just like it sounds, uh, on Twitter. And let me see, music composed uh, and performed by John Veropoulos and Doug O'Connor with a little help from me. Uh, I think that is all the business that we have here to take care of. Uh, I'm going to dismiss class, I think, just a few minutes early today. Uh, so long, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.